Until quite recently, most of the bodies that get studied in the biological sciences have been male. The researcher Kat Bohannon says occasionally scientists would include females when exploring the obvious stuff, ovaries and hormones. But she says from mice to monkeys, pigs to humans, it's almost always been a male body prodded and poked in a laboratory. There's actually a name for this. It's called the male norm. And Bohannon saw the perfect example of it at the movies. This was years ago. She was in a darkened theater in New York watching a scene from Prometheus, one of the sequels to the sci-fi horror film Alien. So in this moment, the main character, played by Numi Rapace, is shambling into a part of her crashed spaceship where she needs a C-section. Because the director, Ridley Scott, has impregnated her effectively with a large, vicious alien squid. Right. So she wants a C-section, which is a very reasonable thing to want in such a moment, you know, with the tentacles kind of flailing around your uterus. So she says, okay, dear MedPod, give me a C-section. The MedPod says, beep boop. I'm sorry, this MedPod is calibrated for male patients only. And she's something like, oh God, right? And has to give herself a C-section with like staples and lasers. And, you know, it's a very bloody scene, but somehow she manages to get her uninvited guest out of her. But while that's happening... I can hear a woman in the audience behind me say, crap, who does that? And yes, actually, who does that? Who sends a multi-trillion dollar expedition into space and forgets to make sure the med pod works on women? And it just so happened because I was a PhD student at Columbia at the time and knew something about it. I was like, oh, actually, that's us. Yeah. Hi. Hi. That's you and me and everybody actually right now, not sci-fi at all. That's actually the state of medicine right now, but it's getting better. But for a very long time, we simply had medicine shaped around male bodies. We had the biological sciences shaped around male bodies because there was such a thing as the male norm. Almost everything we know about mammalian bodies is based on decades and decades and decades of research into male bodies because we simply weren't studying the females, from rat to dog to monkey to all too often humans. Being sexed actually is deeply influencing how your body functions because your liver doesn't have a freaking pronoun. But it does have a biological sex, and that affects how it metabolizes a number of different drugs you might take. I had actually learned from a neuroscience postdoc at Columbia, where I was studying, that the male norm existed. So I actually had been waiting for about two years at the moment I saw Prometheus for someone else to put out the book. Like, surely someone would do a public-facing kind of thing about this, right? And I kept waiting. I kept waiting. I kept waiting. I was doing my own research. You know, I'm busy, right? And then I'm like, oh, wait, half of this audience has never heard of anything like this watching this stupid sci-fi movie. Well, I'm a fan of sci-fi. I'll praise as it deserves to the film. But you know what I mean, right? And then it was like, okay, actually, right, someone needs to do it. So, okay, fine, I'll do it. Okay, fine. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking with Kat Bohannon about her new book. It's called Eve. 
It traces the evolution of women's bodies, but she also explains how that deep history shaped all of our lives. Bohannon says that male norm comes from what she describes in the book as this older understanding of what sexed bodies are. Well, I think there have been two different ideas. Like when it huh. comes to social stuff, it's like it's sexism. It's just sexism. We can call it what it is. You know, that having a female body makes you a certain way, makes you feel certain ways, makes you behave in the world in certain ways. But in biology, there was this central idea that you could build what's called a model of any given hmm. thing you wanted to know about how, how say – you know, topic X works in mammals. Well, you start in rat more than likely, and then you move your way up the chain, not simply because we care less about rats. But the thing is, is that in the sciences, we absolutely start in rat precisely because there's this assumption of continuation, this assumption that what's going on in early mammals is probably still going to have its analogs going to be similar in a mm. human body, right? Yeah. So yeah. if you're building a model of, I don't know, let's say how Alzheimer's works, that's actually really complicated. But anyway, you know, you have a rodent model of Alzheimer's, right? Which is that you do terrible things to rats that have certain brains. And so Right. And then you try and test drugs and figure out what's going on. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that we if you assume that sex differences don't matter, then the easiest way to control for the messiness of female hormonal cycles, because rats have it, too. They don't menstruate the way we do, but they do have this estrus cycle, this cycling of hormones around their reproductive lives, which you know, can cause all kinds of chaos throughout the body. And when you're a scientist, you want to control for your confounds. You want to you make your experiments as neat and clean as, well, and frankly, understandable as you can. That's why you want to control for these factors. So there was a kind of unspoken thing that happened decades ago where everyone just sort of decided to just not study females. And that was the easiest way to not worry about what, you know, an ovary might do to your target tissue. Because remember, in nearly every tissue in a mammalian body, there are sex hormone receptors. And they actually have really complex influence. And as that balance of hormones changes over your menstrual cycle, over your estrus cycle, it might change what you're looking at as a scientist, right? So if you don't want to know about something about the ovaries or the uterus or lactation or what have you, maybe you just leave it out. But what happened then is that we've basically been modeling bodies like a Mr. Potato Head, right? That apparently you could just hot swap these things out yeah. and there's your basic model and moving on. But it turns out, oh, no, 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 no. No, actually, all kinds of things are radically influenced, not only by hormones, but even genetic stuff around sex differences. And we're hmm. only just starting to fill that gap in now. But that's a huge shift in biology. That's like... That's a paradigm shift. That's saying that, okay, instead of just one model, we need a dual model for maybe everything, you know? And then we'll figure out what matters later. But first, we have to build those dual models. Okay, I want to come back to that question here um, in a bit. Like what – because that is one of the questions you ask. Like, all right, what would change in all of this when you ask the question of what's different about the female body? So, so what would change? So, but, but, but hang on with that. Because I think before we jump in, I wanted to have you talk about something that really helped me kind of understand something about evolution. And I think it's kind of one of those grounding questions that people need to understand before we move on. And it's the way you help explain how the female body drives human evolution 
it's, it's how you explain how bodies are basically units of time. This body we have now came from this series of events and patterns like our digestive system developed before our brains did. And so some of this stuff developed before we were up on our feet, you know, walking around. So talk about how, how, how it's important to understand that as we go along. Absolutely. So what do you see when you look in the mirror? Well, you mostly see your anxiety that's roughly in a, in a silhouette of a human shape. But what you're really seeing when you look in the mirror is this barely contained series of events that are happening, most of them microscopic, right? But you, you're actually this loosely bounded thing that's happening more than something hmm. that is. And what's tricky about individual organisms, which is to say you, your body, your the unis that is you, yeah? yeah, is that actually some of these processes start well before your body even comes online, right? Because in some ways, the the moment of fertilization is a little bit um, uh, artificial. But like, actually, life itself is something that just keeps happening. That's what this is, this loosely bounded series of events that cascade over and over and over over time until, at least in your body, you know, all the forces that are keeping you from flying apart at the seams finally let go, and we call that death, right? So actually, what you're looking at in the mirror is almost like a point of light, you know, in in something streaming backwards behind you through time and streaming out forwards in front of you. But that's a very dizzying thing to think about, too. The main way to remember that you are not simply this loosely bounded thing of anxieties, which is also a body, which is also material that you see in the mirror, is is that some parts of you began mm, a much longer time ago than than something that happened now. Your digestive system, like I say in the book, is radically old. You know, your brain, not so much, actually, yeah. kind of recent and really, really buggy, kind of like the latest update <laughs> on your iPhone, like maybe there are problems there, right? But you know, can you actually digest food? Well, it's complicated, but for the most part, yes, right? And so when you think about sex differences, then too, remember that so much of what the body is has evolved in deep time. Yeah, Mm. that this is something that came on board and shifted just enough to make your body different from what your ancestors had going on before in very ancient situations. Mm. So you say our bodies aren't just one thing and there's no one mother, no one Eve. It's not that's not quite how it works. There are Eves plural in this story, not one Eve. But let's talk about one of them anyway. Um. Morgi, um, which gets us to the question of milk. And I wanted you to start with this image that you have in the book. Um, this is Morgi, and you can talk about who she is. At the head of this chapter, you, you call her the little hunter, and you imagine this little creature venturing outside of her you know, burrow, sort of when it's good and dark because she's you know, got to be careful. Of course, mammals then are hardly, you know, the dominant class of uh, animals that we are now. So Mor- this is how you put it. You say Morgi flitted over the feet of dinosaurs. Um, talk about Morgi and what happens when she comes back to the burrow to her newborn pups. So Morgi is Morganicodon. She's actually a whole genus. I nicknamed her Morgi because the Smithsonian does actually on a little placard. So I didn't even have to do that narrative work. 
and she was a wonderful little weasel bitch. She was just about the size of a mouse, and she lived literally under the feet of dinosaurs. She had little burrows in the ground, and she was an insectivore. And the reason, of course, she comes out at night is certainly safety, but it's also that she's evolved to be in that nocturnal niche. The funny thing is, in many of these eaves, there's always more than I can possibly say. It turns out that the circadian cycle, you know, the cycle of day to night, is even more exquisitely tied to the functioning of the modern human female body than it is to the male. We're all bound to the fact that we evolve on this spinning rock that's going around this particular yellow star and has its cycles of day and night. But it turns out being female even more so, uh, which is probably part of why night shifts really suck for people with ovaries and suck for males too, just slightly less and in different ways. So Morgie is there and she's living her weird weaselly life in ancient time. And um, she goes out and she gets her insects, she gets her food, but then she comes home to her burrow just before dawn. And she is going to skitter down on legs that still go to the side like a lizard. She's crawling on her belly. She doesn't have an upright pelvis yet. She finds her pups there in her burrow, and she's going to nurse them. And the thing is, is that this is really one of those moments where the mammalian line begins, because we've really changed how we're going through reproduction. In this moment, we're still laying eggs, actually. But she um, nurses her pups with this milk that she's producing from her own body. And this does all kinds of things to help keep those pups alive in a dangerous world. And that's really where that story of female bodies and sex differences in mammals begins, I think. We really are deeply changing how we make babies, which has all kinds of impacts throughout our bodies over our lives. Is this before... So she does. Morgie doesn't have breasts. She doesn't have nipples. At least no. you, you mentioned that basically what her pups are doing is drinking beads of milk sweated out of her skin. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And she's a furry little chick too. Yeah, yeah. So the duck-billed <laughs> platypus is a monotreme. And some people use her as a model for what really ancient mammals might have been like because the duck-billed platypus still lays eggs, but yeah. mammal. And also has these mammary hairs, these patches on her belly fur, which are sweating out milk. And her weird, very alien-looking little pups, when they hatch from their eggs somewhere in Australia, mm. lick this milk off of her belly fur between those weird little bills they've got. That's the origin of milk, actually. In this part of the book, you write about um, how from basically the dawn of recorded civilization, human beings have um, employed wet nurses. Um, Say something about this because you argue in the book that basically human cities, um, maybe that's Morky's greatest legacy. So we often talk about the history of urbanization. Um, And by this, I mean the first cities, dawn of cities uh, in deep time. We usually are talking about the Middle East, although actually urbanization happens in many cultures throughout the world at different points in time. And we do it in slightly different ways. But if we're talking about the ancient Middle East and this thing that would become Babylon, okay, we think about cities and we say, ah, this was agriculture. Uh, And once we had enough food, then we had enough babies, and that's how populations grow, you know, and then some problems with disease, and then some problems with warring, and so on and so forth. But how do you actually build out 
that demographic question. How do you get enough bodies to have something we would call an ancient city? Mm. Well, the weird thing that's often left out of these discussions is the simple fact that female bodies make the babies. And so human reproduction is always a factor in whether or not you are making babies. It's not straightforward. And it turns out the female body, particularly in humans, uh, does this very difficultly. It's actually very difficult for human bodies to mm -hmm. make babies. But the really interesting thing about breastfeeding, which of course is your question, is that breastfeeding is an imperfect ovulation suppressant. Put it in simple terms, it's our earliest pill, okay? This is how you try to not have offspring for a certain period of your life. The longer you breastfeed, the longer you are likely to space your babies out. Imperfectly, but yes, you are far less likely, should you find your way uh, across some sperm internally, to produce an offspring after that one that you just had or that litter, depending on which mammal you are. Uh, during that period in which you're lactating. Okay. Well, the thing about human history is that we often, in our deeply social lives, outsourced our breastfeeding across whatever you might want to call a social class in something like, say, an ancient Babylon. All right? Yeah. So what that means then is that some females, some women, were then giving their babies to other women to nurse they would then become fertile sooner than they would have otherwise, okay? Now imagine that these nursing, these wet nurses, these nursing bodies are then also imperfectly controlling their own ovulation. And any good OB will tell you, actually, the longer it's been from the moment you gave birth, you person who is lactating, the more imperfect that ovulation suppression. Mm. Which means that Two women, one who has given birth and given her baby to a wet nurse and the one who is then nursing that other person's baby, are going to have more babies more frequently than two women who are just nursing their own babies. It rapidly becomes, in other words, a math problem. And actually, it does turn out to be true. In ancient human cities where wet nursing was very commonly a thing, populations grew far more rapidly than in populations that had cities that we know things about, of course. So this is relatively recent human history, not 300,000 years ago, but a few thousands of years ago. But yes, cities that didn't have wet nurses had much smaller populations that grew much less rapidly than cities that did have wet nurses. Mm -hmm. And of course, that means then the history of urbanization, the history of how we made something like a Babylon, which had absolutely massive population compared to, um, well, same era Jerusalem, as I say mm -hmm. in the book, in the era of King David, uh, in part is doing that by literally manipulating their mammalian ovulation patterns by having wet nurses. Wow. And that's a story that you don't actually often hear about human history, mostly because females are often kind of um, a side character, aren't we? Yeah. Kat Bohannon. Her book is Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. You know, one of the insights you offer in the book is that, you know, there are these certain 
you know, certain aspects of the female body, they have these attendant costs, which gets us to the part of the book where you mention the, the basically the trench warfare that is growing babies in the womb. Um, first, may, maybe explain what you mean when you write that live birth took hold in an apocalypse. Right. This is the womb chapter uh, where we arrive at a different eve. And this is the moment where we've stopped laying eggs and we start giving birth to live young. Now, the placenta, which is where babies dock on to the mammalian uterus, for those of us that give birth, not through eggs, but to live young, which is most of us at this point. Um, This evolves before that asteroid comes hurtling through the atmosphere to slam into this thing that we now call the coast of Mexico and wipe out all the dinosaurs. Um, But it really takes hold. It really becomes the dominant norm uh, Mm. in that apocalyptic scene where all the dinosaurs are burning and then dead in the long asteroid winter that follows. Um, And uh, we diversify, we mammals, and fill all of the niches uh, left in these smoking holes uh, where all the dinosaurs died off, except, of course, for birds. So the thing about the placenta that's so crazy yeah. is that um, it's really, really a bad idea to lay eggs inside your own body. Okay? Let me just make that really, really clear. Much better idea to have a nest and put your eggs in there where they will then hatch and get fed from elsewhere. Right? When you're doing it in your own body, what you end up creating is what's called maternal-fetal competition. Think of the uterus as an environment. You have the fetus, which long evolves to get as many nutrients and resources as it possibly can through that umbilical cord and then through the placenta from the mother's body, all right? And you also have the mother's body, which has longer evolved to survive, okay? Mm -hmm. It really would like to live. And so what you actually end up with in placental reproduction, in, in reproduction the way we do it, I mean, is this long detente, this kind of trench warfare, where both bodies are in competition for the same resources and are actively trying to um, not die. And so what's really going on then with the placenta is it is effectively not just kind of like waving high and being nurtured by the maternal body, but actively warring against her immune system, which has long evolved to... um, well, eliminate invaders, okay? So the placenta evolves to downregulate the maternal immune system, right? And the mother's immune system is doing what it has evolved to do anciently, which is putting out fires, basically. So the placenta puts on a bunch of fires, actually, uh, and the immune system is effectively distracted by it, and it does a number of other things, too. Mm. Uh, and meanwhile, it's able to then get as many resources as possible without being attacked by that maternal immune system, through the placental blood supply to build out this really expensive thing, which is the growing fetal body, which is about the most metabolically active tissue that exists, in fact, in uh, the animal world. A growing fetus is wildly, um, well, expensive. It's wildly active. It's just building, 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 hungry, hungry, hungry. And the maternal body is... um, just trying to handle that, really. The moment we give birth is deeply tied to the moment at which it becomes too metabolically costly for the Mm. maternal body to continue carrying this thing. And it actually just kind of kicks it out the back door. If it's so costly, 
why did we ditch why did we ditch laying eggs how why how did nature select for incubating your eggs inside of a body if it's such a kind of crummy or seemingly dangerous inefficient system Oh, man, that is a multi-billion dollar question. I would love to have a time machine to find out, man. There are many, many things. Yeah, of course we don't. There are many. We have our models. We have our theories. We have our suppositions. Um, But the real answer, of course, is that we don't know. But you shouldn't be surprised that we don't know, not only because we don't have a time machine, but also because there are so many things in evolution that clearly produce a pretty crummy situation for the bodies that still carry those traits But for whatever reason, the perks seem to outweigh the costs and or it's just not quite detrimental enough to damage uh, your reproductive line. And so it doesn't get selected against. Let's talk about perception. You write about this in the book and you you write about working as a a model at a local art school when you were in college. Oh, yeah. Just explain what you discovered about perception during this time. I think the sort of insight you came to is really telling. Right. So I was a professional naked person in college. So, you know, I would go and I would take off all my clothes and stand on a raised dais and um, art students would learn how to draw bodies. But of course, this was the um, late 90s. And so that meant that a lot of people still smoked, which is a terrible idea. Please don't do it. But that meant that they had smoke breaks in the middle of their classes. They would all go downstairs. I got to put on a robe and kind of pad around barefoot in the room while everyone was gone and look at my body just taking Mm. form on these easels on their canvas. And what was interesting to me is that the guys in the room were all drawing my boobs too big for my body. I mean, pretty much all of them, maybe one or two exceptions, but like all of them. And the females in the room, the, the girls in the room, were not doing that. And because it was the 90s, it was a fairly even split of gender in the room. So I remember, and now I'm 18 in this moment, and I'm 18, 19, I think I stopped when I was 20. And I'm thinking, oh, do guys see me differently? Do they literally experience a different perceptive reality than me? Is it just that they... Now, when I'm talking about size difference, let me make this clear. They were huge. I mean, just like serious knockers on my chest, on yeah. the canvas, okay? Right. Really okay. just like that was not appropriate. And it didn't look like porn, okay? It didn't seem to be like a, like a you know, they're obsessed with it and then kind of a giggle situation, you yeah. know, like Tiki, I get to do Playboy Live or whatever. Right. It's just like, like they literally weren't seeing me right, you know? Yeah, but what was yeah. really interesting is over the course of the semester, my boobs would shrink on the <laughs> canvas, over time on these guys' canvases. And what was happening is their brains were learning how to reproduce what their eyes actually saw and not what their brains thought they saw, right? Mm. So it wasn't simply that they were becoming better artists, because that was true for the girls too, right? It's that they were learning to represent what their eyes were addressing. And so that's how I opened the perception chapter, like, okay, Mm -hmm. where do sex differences in uh, vision and other senses come from in deep, deep time? And is that why they were drawing my boobs bigger? So that's how I do it. Well, and then you get to the question of, you know, um, at what point, like, where was the, and when was the face made? 
Which gets us to yeah. another Eve, the Eve of primate perception, as you're right. This is, is it Pergi? Yeah, it's Pergi, Purgatorius. Pergy. She's great. Yep. She's uh, yeah. one of the first primates. So talk about Pergi and what, how then we start to develop. Um, this is the section where you write about the development of the nose and olfaction. And um, you write about just the um, – this was such a fascinating section about how as we – our noses became flatter and flatter the less we uses, used them and the more we relied on our ears. Um, what, is, what does Pergi have to do with anything? So the real big deal is that we became arboreal, right? A, lo- a certain line of mammals went up into the trees and we didn't just go up into the trees. We went up into the fruiting trees because actually before the asteroid, a lot of forests were conifers, pine trees, okay? Certain kind of tree. They don't make fruit in quite the same way as what um, you would picture nowadays in like, say, an apple tree, right? Yeah. No such thing really as an apple tree in uh, the ancient Edens of our early primate ancestors. One of the major shifts was the development of these big fruiting tree canopies. And <laughs> all primates are really deeply tied to there. Both our sensory array, which is this thing we call a face, so that's our <laughs> eyes and our ears, our nose, our mouth, all hung on this head thing and that uh, usefully position these deep sensors to perceive the world around us. And for most of us, we have these nice necks so we can swivel our sensory array. That helps too, right? So they're evolving in ways that they uh, differently or wouldn't have evolved had they stayed ground-based, right? So our ancient, deeply ancient, 200 million years ago, mammalian eaves, ground-based, burrowing, you know, little creatures under the feet, more like a rodent now. But once you get up into primates, now you're literally up into the trees and you need eyes and ears and a nose that can sense this whole new availability of, well, fruit, particularly fruit on the distal branches. That means the the far tinier branches out at the edges of that, of that canopy, right? Where that sweet fruit is growing. And so the whole body, but particularly the sensory array, starts to evolve in ways in these ancient primates, these proto-monkeys, if you will, um, that optimizes for that food source. And that changes how we see things, that changes how we hear things, that changes how we smell things. And by the time we arrive at a monkey face, that characteristic thing that any kid can draw with kind of a flatter face and the ears at the side and the big binocular forward-facing eyes... Well, yeah, that's when we're really smelling things way, way, way less than we used to. Way less than most mammals, actually. Because the nose becomes much less of a thing, and the eye's visuality become much, much more of a thing. Kat Bohannon, she's a researcher and science writer. Her book is Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. You say that um, the mechanical thing that goes into our voices, that gets us to this section where you write about the voice, which is really fascinating, that that mechanical thing that goes into our voices, into getting you know our throat and mouth to make a sound, 
It's, it's like a magic trick, you say. It, like it seems ordinary, but it's not – you say it's not at all ordinary. Um, so talk a little bit about this because you say it's not really clear how or when we manage to sort of pull off grammar and language. What do we know about that part and why is this important in the story of Eve? As I often have to do in this book, I uh, have to kind of onboard a stereotype about sex differences and then see if any of it actually plays out in what we know in our huh. physiology. I'll huh. use it both as an inquiry space, but then also as a launch pad. It's both, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. is it or isn't actually true that females are more verbal than males? Mm-hmm. So in the evolution of language, we're all the way up later in the book now in the voice chapter. You know, the common stereotype that we have of females being more verbal and and in, by implication more lingual, right, that we talk more, um, should be in some ways supported by our physiology, should be in some ways supported by, by the study of sex differences in psychology and what have you. And the real takeaway there is that there are some physiological differences in the vocal apparatus, the male and female vocal apparatus that uh, the female vocal apparatus stereotypically is slightly better designed for up-close and more precise communication. Um, And the male vocal apparatus is a little bit better at uh, distance tasks and a little bit less precise. Now, does that mean that one or the other drove language? Nah, probably not. Language is really hella useful because, like I say, it is a magic trick. Mm. It's absolutely crazy that we can use language to communicate knowledge over incredible distances, that we can build knowledge with more than just like monkey see, monkey do, Mm. right? Like that's a huge upgrade in a communication system that no other species actually really has. But in that, you have to assume it's not that we arrive all of a sudden whole cloth at language, okay? There's going to be this long, long evolution of primate social communication that eventually very accidentally produces proto-language, right? So it's not like, ah, here, now is when we have language. Actually, Mm -hmm. imagine millions and millions of years of deeply social communication that eventually becomes something like vocal language, yeah? Mm -hmm. One of the things that's interesting to me then in the voice chapter that I was like, okay, Is there evidence of any advantage in the female vocal tract for communication? And then it's associated ears because, of course, for those of us who communicate uh, vocally and then through uh, normal hearing patterns, right, then that's going to be a vocal apparatus and a hearing thing in one, right? You can't really have one without the other to communicate in that case. Um, Well, then it's interesting, for example, that the um, female hearing seems to be particularly good at precise communication, uh, particularly in auditory ranges that do correspond to the higher pitches of juvenile voices, particularly in babies' voices. doesn't have to shape your destiny now. But there is evidence that the female ear is just slightly better at hearing those uh, noises, right, those pitches. Mm -hmm. And there is evidence that the female vocal tract is slightly advantaged when it comes to the kind of up-close, concrete precise communication patterns that human-type vocal language requires, right? So Mm. in that sense, it is true, maybe, that the female users of human language are ever so slightly better at it, just uh, in our physiology, I mean. Um, But it doesn't mean that it wasn't advantageous for all of us to have this magic trick. Well, the part about... um 
motherese. It was so interesting. I mean, you, you say that the first thing a mother does after she you know, rec- basically recovers from the exhaustion of giving birth is she, as you put it, changes the music of how she talks. Ex- explain that part. Well, you give it a shot, yeah? How would you say to a baby, who's a good baby? Who's a good baby? Yeah, yeah, who's a good baby? There is this pattern of speech that we would call child-directed speech, or in, originally we would call it things like motherese. There's a way we talk to babies, man, mm-hmm. that involves changing your pitch and just overemphasizing your phone memes. You know, it's just making this really musical way of talking that often, if you were to do it to an adult, sounds incredibly patronizing and annoying, but we all kind of just understand is appropriate for how you talk to very young kids. Yeah. And in fact, it seems to be so innate and so ingrained. So a thing that we do, we also do it to our freaking pets. And the technical term in the scientific language is doggerel. Uh, that you say to your dog, who's a good puppy? Who's a good puppy? Who's a good puppy? You're a good puppy. And you hear that I'm stretching the ways in which I'm doing my words here. I'm stretching, you know, both the pitch and the length at which I pronounce one syllable or another. Okay. Now this mostly to people who don't have kids or just are annoyed by it. Well, it's annoying, right? It's an annoying pattern of speech that so many people do. And then of course, it's used to denigrate mothers because we mm. like to talk mm. crap about females, particularly mothers. We're just mean to moms all the time. And so we make fun of moms for doing this voice. Okay. But the thing is, is that in parents in many different language groups that use motherese in this way, their kids seem to have a slight advantage in language acquisition. Okay. Mm. There seems to be something about having this child-directed speech that nearly every human culture has, by the way, nearly every one, that is often advantageous for this really difficult task of language acquisition, of learning how to understand and produce language, which is what babies are really freaking doing in their first three years of life. Those three years are this intense period of cognitive development and, frankly, code-breaking. There's actually a period in life wherein you um, have to figure out that this string of sound that your milk beast is chirping at you, which of course is your mom, but you don't know that yet, but you only kind of do, that this is segmented into individual words. You don't know that at first. You have to even learn what the heck a word is in that string. And it's Mm -hmm. strongly associated with a period in which you would uh, still probably for most human cultures historically be breastfeeding, primarily communicating with your mom. And she's primarily, well, she's talking to you like this. Who's a good baby? Right. Does sexism develop for a particular reason in the evolution of, of humans? Or really any creature, I guess. Any mammal, maybe, say. Um, this is something you write about. Where does you know sexism and patriarchy, where does it fit in that evolutionary story? So some reviewers of the book have been uh, slightly confused because I give myself this basic question. Uh, you know, is human sexism in any way advantageous to its user set? 
Okay. Right. Uh, that isn't to say that I'm really talking about it as an advantage uh, in a way that in any way outweighs the incredible amounts of human suffering associated with sexism. Yeah. It's more that I've noticed um, there's something incredibly patronizing and silly when we talk about uh, human women internalizing sexism and then behaving in sexist ways. This is a phrase that we use both in feminism and just in public discourse, that when a woman does something that's sexist or upholds or regulates sexist norms, for example, um, more greatly punishing uh, a woman who has an affair with a married guy than the married guy, right? Mm. That she's the home wrecker. It's like, wait, yeah. but wasn't he having the affair though? Mm-hmm. You know, which is to say she has broken a social norm around what females are allowed to do. Uh, and that she is incredibly greatly punished. And many of the punishers are not men, mm. but in fact, others is women who are even more strongly regulating, right? And so there's this story that somehow the women who are doing that have just taken in this thing from guys, this sexism that surely must be created by guys, and then just kind of internalized it, and they're then acting as a kind of weird, horrible puppet for somebody else's idea. Like, actually, it turns out that all members of any given culture are equally creating and regulating the rules of that culture in each moment of their day, in each subsequent generation. We are constantly innovating around and resisting cultural norms and cultural Mm. rules. And what's interesting about nearly every human culture in recorded history and what we know in the world now is that we all create sex rules. And by that, I mean, we create rules around access to female bodies, where she can go, what she Mm -hmm. can wear, whom she can associate with, what parts of her body can be seen and by which people and in which contexts, where can it go in a given day? What's it supposed to do? And of course, by the time you arrive at anything like actual sexuality, all of these rules are moving together and are strongly reinforced to control her sex life, Mm -hmm. right? It's strongly controlling access to female bodies. And when you think about them, so this isn't just sexism like males treating females badly, okay? We're not just talking about that and what kind of jobs we can have and whether or not it matters if we can be heard in a boardroom. I mean like the deep cultural norms around sex rules. That's the part of sexism that I'm interested in. And if you think about it as a biologist, if you think about it through a scientific frame, When you have a set of behavioral norms, local cultural rules that are controlling female sexuality, Mm. well, that's going to have huge evolutionary implications. That's going to have huge impacts on reproductive fitness. And the interesting thing about human societies is not simply how diverse we are, but the fact that we live in many, many different environments Mm. with many, many different sorts of historical and present access to resources with many different ways of, well, living together and organizing ourselves and in a given environment, having babies and raising those babies, which is to say from a scientific point of view, all of Mm. these sex rules have obvious implications for our reproductive health. So think back to deep time and say, okay, in deep time, controlling sexuality may keep some communities better able to survive and thrive than those that don't have sex rules, right? Because if female reproduction in the human species is inherently dangerous, and it is, 
and the raising of children is inherently dangerous and wonky, and it is, then having different ways of innovating around when and how females have babies, have sex, and then subsequently sometimes have babies, and how those babies are then raised, and how many she might have, and so on and so forth, actually is going to influence strongly the reproductive success of that group, often with one strategy over another. And so what I see, in other words, is a long biological tail, right? And I don't mean tail like story. I mean like, you know, tail on a statistical graph, a long period Mm. of sex rules being a deep part of human culture that help us survive and thrive. The only thing is, nowadays, gynecology is so much better at helping females survive and thrive than whether or not you wear a certain length of skirt. Yeah. That uh, it's long since outworn its welcome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's the question you ask is whether it's still whether sexism, as you say, is still doing the job it evolved to do. That's the question. If this is the context in which this um, drive to create human culture, which will probably have sex rules in it. Right. Mm. If that was advantageous in deep time, is it still now? Does it produce the kinds of outcomes which to a scientist, to a biologist would say, uh, yes, this is advantageous. Is it still advantageous now? And in the book, I walk through it and I say, yeah, no, not mm-hmm. so much, actually, or at least not in ways that I'm able to map. And it makes us less healthy. It uh, it reduces many ways in which communities can survive and thrive. In fact, it often runs counter to that original potential purpose, right? That actually mm-hmm. sexism nowadays uh, greatly negatively impacts the physical health of many cis women and girls, actually, the majority of cis women and girls. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's doing the opposite effect. I want to come back to this question we were talking about earlier. You know, one of the revelations for you that it seems helped you start writing this book and thinking about it is you wanted to know what would change if you asked the question of what's different about the female body? Um I don't know if you thought about the – if you think about the way we evolved as societies, if you think about just the the, the myriad statistics um, that are problematic because we're missing – you know, we're just getting half of the picture when we just look at the uh, the male bias in doing all of these studies. What, what would change fundamentally do you, do you think for for – Females. I think what would change fundamentally for females if we had a better picture of how the biology of sex differences is really working, what would change is that massive amounts of human suffering would be reduced. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many side effects that we're only just starting to understand. Um from many of the medications that we take that are uniquely and unusually um, harmful to female bodies. I would like to have a better picture of that. Um, I would like to have a better picture of how menopause works and how we could make that suck less and how female aging could suck less. The only way we're going to get there is by studying sex differences. You mentioned this quiet revolution going on in the science of womanhood and that it seems to be growing is do you think that getting back to stories and how important stories have been in your you know in your work 
you mentioned that we are – you want us to or we are building this new story. Um, and that's what the book is. It's this, it's this new story. It's this truer story. Do you feel hopeful now that that quiet revolution is writing that, that different story of Eve? I do feel hopeful. I feel so hopeful. And the reason that I feel so hopeful is because when you think about deep time, you're able to pull the camera back. And so while the situation with women's rights in our country is um, <clears throat> a problem, um, you can see over the course of the last 400 years, actually, we are absolutely moving towards sex egalitarianism. That actually, we're still telling the good story for the liberation of women and girls. Uh, it's just that we have to keep our foot on the pedal. And we have to not lose hope uh, because we're still on the right track. We're still moving inexorably forward towards a future that's going to be better for all of us, frankly. And the way that we're going to make it better for all of us is improving the health of women and girls. And uh, we're going to do that by continuing to go on. Um, but we can't assume that the small wins that we have are enough. We have to know that uh, there's a lot of suffering we could reduce by keeping the pressure on. Kat Mohanan, her book is Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas or comments or feedback, you can email us at radiowest at KUER.org. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.